Good morning. I'm, uh, my name is Josh Casey. I'm the uh, pastor for discipleship here at Stonebridge and uh, just honored to uh, be able to preach God's word to his people here today. Um, I get to, uh, I guess as baseball speaking, I get a bat cleanup today. Um, so, so we'll see if I bring everybody home. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Uh, actually, Pastor Brandon asked me to, uh, to preach on this and, uh, and uh, just in my own uh, my own wondering, how do I get chosen for, for such a task as this? Um, I, uh, I, I have a feeling that I was chosen to preach here um, today because I'm the most emotional of the preachers. And, uh, and since there are a lot of emotion here, uh, he just basically said, just tell about your life and it'll kind of work. Uh, so we'll see what happens. A lot of, a, you know, by way of testimony, maybe this is more just some of those emotions that I've, I've worked through as Jonah is working through here. Um, and, uh, and, and, and learning how those emotions are, um, are real uh, and how Christ redeems them and, uh, and uses them for his glory and for his purposes. Uh, so one of the, uh, because of uh, maybe, if, I don't know, I just paint myself as this wildly emotional person, I probably am, but um, uh, one of the people that is fascinating to me, uh, being a child of the 80s, is, uh, is a guy named Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, I grew up watching that and loved it. Uh, and then uh, as I got older, actually, I, I, I love it even more um, as I started reading, uh, you know, biography of, of, of Fred Rogers and, and, and the movies that have come out here in the last couple of years. I'm um, just fascinated with this guy and just his understanding of the emotional place uh, in a child's life. Uh, just to understand how to speak to kids, to help them understand uh, heavy, or I think, what does he say, big emotions, uh, and, to, and to, to map those, to understand what, is the, what do we do with these? Where do they come from? Uh, are they wrong? Are they good? Are they bad? Uh, and it's, it's, it's so helpful the way that he does it. I think we'd all do well to, uh, to take, a, take, a, uh, take a page out of uh, Fred Rogers' book and, and talk to our kids a little more slowly and compassionately than we do oftentimes. But um, some of that uh, influences a little bit of my understanding of how, uh, you know, we were going to be talking about someone who's acting very much like a kid with their emotions here in Jonah 4. Uh, but one of the things that I, I love is one of the songs um, um, Fred Rogers has is he, it is, uh, one of the lines goes, uh, what do you do with the mad you feel? Uh, it's a great question. What do you do with the mad you feel? And uh, he goes on to explain, you know, all these things. Do you, um, do you, you know, punch clay? Do you go run with your friends? Do you yell? Do you whatever? And at one point, he, he gives the kid, kind of empowers them and says, but you know that you can stop it. You can, I can stop it whenever I want. Um, and he really puts that into, in, into the kids just through song. It's beautiful. Uh, and he's focusing on this idea that you may have anger, which I think is a really good observation. You may have anger. It's not that the anger is sin or not, or right or wrong, um, but that you're you, you own those actions, and what you do from that can be sin. You can act in a way that's angry, and I think it's so helpful for him to, uh, to, to paint that picture. As I think through the, 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 the way in which Fred Rogers maybe has slowed down an emotion and, uh, and, and developed an aspect of it, I think uh, Jonah 4 is doing that for us today. It actually takes several emotions, slows them down a little bit, and interacts with them, and it's interesting that uh, it, it comes at a different angle than maybe where, where Fred Rogers is going, where he says, here's an emotion that has come about from some reason, and what do you do with it? Uh, in Jonah 4, we're going to see maybe what has caused you to have these emotions. What are your thoughts? What are your beliefs? What, do you, what, what, what has brought you about so that you are in this emotional state? 
And I think it's going to be helpful for us. We don't get that too often uh, in sermons. We don't get that too often, that, that emotional treatment so much in Scripture. And I love it when we get that opportunity to talk about it. Um, and so we're going to talk about the emotions. Uh, the emotions that he has here, uh, Jonah does, in, uh, in, this, in this passage, uh, he has several. One of them is um, anger, uh, a big, uh, big one. Uh, it comes up a lot. Uh, so he has anger. Uh, he also has uh, exceeding gladness, which I'm going to call joy. Uh, and then he also has pity. Um, so these are three uh, emotions that we're going to look at. Um, overall, uh, we're going to see that Jonah is off. There's something that went wrong with Jonah. And, and, and this thing that went wrong with Jonah is the thing that kind of makes all of the book of Jonah really interesting. Uh, but it's also um, corrected if we just understand maybe a bigger picture of God's salvation. Maybe understand a, a, different, uh, a different time frame, not just today, can we make today good? But rather, how do we march everyone towards that good place, that shalom, that return to God? And if we just change our perspective a bit, it may affect the way in which we work through our emotions uh, today. So I'm going to spend the, the bulk of our time here on this first emotion of, of anger, um, I think for three reasons. It's, first one is it's the primary emotion that arises here. Jonah's going to get asked in verse 4, verse 9, um, do you do well to be angry? Uh, and, and when Jonah finally answers, he's going to answer like a sniveling brat, you know. And, uh, and so it'll be, uh, it'll be real great for him to get more angry in his answer. Um, and so that's one reason. The other one is, I think that developing maybe one of the more difficult emotions, anger would be probably a harder one for us to, to talk about rather than joy or, uh, or pity. Uh, that maybe if we spend a little bit more time on that, it would be good to, uh, to kind of get, kind of figure out how the whole idea of bringing Christ into the emotions works. Um, but I think the bigger, uh, maybe the bigger one or biggest one for us, for Christians today as we apply this, is, um, is I really feel like um, spending more time on anger is going to be helpful because evangelical Christians are increasingly more and more identified as angry people. Uh, we are just an angry lot of people. Um, and, uh, and, we, and we don't do so well with that. Um, and so maybe we want to talk through that a little bit more, that maybe understanding where Jonah's at, identifying with him a bit so that we can apply the principles of his life into ours might bring about a, uh, a better, uh, more rightly aligned joy, a pity for people, uh, and an anger that brings about uh, righteousness for all. So that's a big frame up of what we're going to do. We're going to enter into these emotions. I want to get you ready there. I wanted to say, hey, this sermon's going to be emotional and then give you a little space to, you know, buckle up, but we're going to get emotional now. Um, so we get to, uh, we get to uh, the last verse in chapter 3. When God saw that the Ninevite, uh, what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so what we have here is, is kind of, that, that's what brings us into this chapter. What's happened before that is that God has called a man to come give a message to people, proclaim his justice uh, and how it works to a, a perishing people. Uh, Jonah says no, uh, and then after Jonah says yes, he, well, he says no, he goes under in the belly of a whale for three days. When he's spit out, he finally does give that message, and when people turn to God, he then goes and he sits and waits for it to play out. That's kind of where, where we're at here. So Jonah sees what happens to these people, and then we get to verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Um, just like a toddler, never gets mad. They get really mad. Uh, and that's what he's doing. So the question that we have for our first, uh, for our first point is, what makes you angry? 
Uh, really trying to put these uh, questions. We'll have three questions uh, today. They're great ones for you to write down and uh, kind of work through on your own. Maybe talk about with your, with your family, with your friends, with your small group. Um, what makes you angry? Well, we want to see what makes, uh, what makes Jonah angry. Uh, God asks, do you do well to be angry? So we know he has anger. Before we really unpack this idea of what is Jonah, uh, what, make, what is making Jonah angry, I want to kind of just look a little bit at the idea of anger. Uh, anger itself is a natural emotion. I think sometimes we don't understand this. It's a natural emotion. Uh, when, when we are created in the image of God, back in G- Genesis 1, we are created and anger was part of that uh, image of God. We find that God uh, gets angry. God burns with wrath. Uh, we find even Jesus uh, is angry. Uh, and so anger is an emotion that people have. It's, it's, an, it's an emotion that God has. Uh, however, it's not that uh, anger is just anger. Uh, there's something that we do with that anger. This is kind of the Fred Rogers, what you do is what you're responsible uh, for. Psalm 4.4 4, uh, says it this way, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. It says, be angry and do not sin. We take those two, those two uh, uh, parts and, and, and look at the poetry there, how they speak into each other. It, it acknowledges that anger is a thing, but that we can't, there is a way for us to be angry and not to sin. Be angry and do not sin. The Bible tells us that because it knows that there is a way to be angry without sin. And, uh, and, and so, so what do you do with that sin then? You know, this is the, the Fred Rogers, where are you going, what you're responsible for. Um, I, I would like to just cross out that bottom, that, you know, the, the last couple lines there and, and write, be angry, do not sin, go to social media and vent your heart. I feel like that would be a better ending to that, to that uh, uh, verse there. It would, it would be easier to follow. Uh, but what does it say? It, it doesn't say go run your mouth, which if you have a Jonah-like heart like me is really hard. Um, it says be silent. It says take that anger slow down. It's not just count to 10, but, but ponder in your own hearts. Did this come from sin? Is my anger from sin? Is my anger actually aligned to the anger of God? Is my anger seeking out the things that God's anger seeks out? And, uh, and if you're wondering, maybe asking the question, where, how do I know what God's anger is? Maybe I should ponder in my heart a scripture to understand what is God's anger. So while anger is a natural emotion, not all anger is righteous. When the Lord asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Uh, I think it might be helpful for us to maybe ask it or hear it in, in, in this question. Are you justified in your anger? Maybe that'd be a good one to write down as well for those times that you're angry is to ask that question, am I justified? Do I have reason? Do I have sufficient, compelling reason to say I am right to be angry? I mean, Jonah thinks he does. He's like, yeah, kill me. Um, uh, kind of exposing the fact he doesn't really have great motives there. But that's a good question to ask. Are you justified in your anger? And so what is this? Uh, what is this anger? Where does it come from? Maybe, maybe consider this, and then we'll really look and ask this question. What is, Jonah's, uh, what is Jonah's anger coming from? As I wonder if anger is, uh, comes about from an unmet expectation, uh, it's that we, we have an expectation and it's, it's not met and it makes us angry. And maybe I'd even qualify it more, is that maybe anger is a, is a fight response to an unmet expectation. And so if you have that idea of that fight or flight, that, that you know, you're hoping for something, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't pan out, 
And if you have that flight, you maybe just get discouraged and quiet. Maybe if you're like Jonah, you get angry and loud. You know, you have something like, um, you know, different, uh, different kinds of protocol that we thought were gone but are coming back now. Um, what does that do? It brings about an emotion there. Um, it, it, maybe it was you were, you were expecting or at least hoping that this year would be different. The school year would have a whole lot of different uh, norms to it. Uh, maybe if you're really hoping for, you know, if you go a, a little superficial, that your team would win and it wasn't met, what did you do? Did you uh, just say, oh man, or shucks, or did you just scream at the TV? There's a response there that comes from an unmet expectation. You come home and and, uh, and, and, and not all the chores you expected to be done are done. What feeling do you feel right then? So we experience an emotion when our expectations aren't met. And I wonder if anger is a fight response to that. What are Jonah's expectations then? If what gets him angry, why is he angry? Uh, it might be that he hasn't met his expectations. Verse 2, Jonah gives us his expectations and they actually make the, the story a whole lot more uncomfortable. He says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Have you ever been around someone that like says something that shouldn't be said? And then you just kind of like sit there and you're like, did that just happen? This is one of those lines. This is one of those lines where you're like, did you seriously just tell God like, you hate everything he's doing because he's incredibly good. Like this isn't this isn't okay. This is what his reasoning is. I'm angry because I expected you to be consistent with your name and character. And then he goes on in verse three to say, "Therefore now kill me. Um, I just want to die." Um, it's, it's it's great. But he he comes to a conclusion there. I kind of maybe want to back up because it's it's too fast if we're slowing down and reading the Bible and asking questions. It seems like he says, God, you're loving, kill me. Okay, let, there's got to be something else in there when he says, therefore. What, what's the rest of the reasoning? Maybe I'll add some of that in. We'll call this verse 2.5. He says, God, I expected that you would be unwavering to your character and to your name. And you were. I expected that you are unchanging that you relent from wrath when people turn from their wickedness, that you burn with wrath against their wickedness. I, uh, I, I have expected, and, and you do, I have expected that the Ninevites are too undeserving of your unchanging character. And since you didn't fall along the lines of my decision for how you work your goodness, I'd rather not have my hands on this. I don't want my fingerprints on this. I just want to die. Take my name off the signature, you know, off the line. I'm not in agreement. In fact, just kill me. I cannot stand that you will be unchanging to your character, even to the people that I really don't want. That's tough. And I know we understand this is, this is the general problem that Jonah has. It's easy for us to think of Ninevites. It's a lot harder when those Ninevites are pundits for the Republicans or the Democrats. Those people are a lot more difficult to think. If I could just go to that studio and sit down 
and have a nice dialogue with these people. My dialogue might be something like, you're all going to die in 40 days. I feel like that's basically Jonah's message. And then they say, the Lord is good. Where would your heart be? I know that's a weird hypothetical. But what about if it weren't on TV? What if there are the people that are sitting maybe even in this room with you that you know have differences? It's hard to talk about how we go about life together. I think an easier one that I referenced is when those people aren't sitting there with you, but they're all collected in this weird space we call social media. Golly, it's easy to, to act like Jonah. To be angry, to not measure our words, and to go after people rather than the problem of brokenness. So, it almost seems that God is saying, are you justified in your anger when he asks his question? But his question also seems to be somewhat of an invitation. It's almost as though he's saying, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Why don't you come over here, be more aligned with my anger, and you'll find that all of your reasons for anger do not stack up to mine, and that my way is a better way forward. You can be angry, but you need to be angry about some different things. So what is God angry with? This is a very short list. I'd encourage you to study what the anger of God. Go through, uh, go to, you know, Blue Letter Bible or Bible Gateway. You can, you can look these up and they'll give you a topical uh, list where you can study what is God's anger. And you go look right at the Bible to study it. It seems that God's anger is, is, uh, is kindled when his holy and worthy name is defamed. It seems like that throughout Scripture, that kind of holds true. It seems that he's saying, um, you know, if that I am a worthy, I'm a holy God, and wicked thoughts that are not in line with mine, holding captive those things that are not holy, defames God's glory. It makes him seem less glorious than he is, and, and, and that's not what we're doing. And that's not who God is worthy of, or what God is worthy of with. Um, also, when our words, when it's not just our thoughts, but when we say things, and this goes not, not just saying, oh, God isn't real, or God is so mad, or God is so whatever, but it's saying things that God wouldn't say and then, and then stamping his name on it. It's, it's saying, you know, this, this uh, political candidate, this uh, social issue, this way of reading the Bible are God's will. That is putting God's name where he hasn't spoken. We know that when we read Scripture, and that is where God's anger is kindled. Or then in our actions, we read this all over the New Testament. There is a certain way of the people of God to act as Jesus did so that the world around may see that what we say is the same as what we do and we really believe it. And when we don't do that, it's in thought, word, or deed, it's as though God has created a covenant, entered into that with us, and when we break that and we do something different and outside of it, that's when his anger is kindled. And what's the purpose of his anger? Well, some of it's for, for punishment. He says that. But another part of it is to bring back. It seems as though his anger is always focused at restoring, at, 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 um, at righteousness, at bringing things back so that there is a holiness there. And he gives warnings of it. And his slow anger, when it is finally kindled from unrepentant hearts, it burns hot. So, then we get to the, the question that we started with. What makes you angry? So, thinking about those things. Thinking about what Jonah is angry about. Thinking about what makes you angry. One, one, one practice I would encourage you to do 
is note the next time you get angry, or maybe you came in angry about something, uh, write it down. And you may not be a journaler, but sometimes this is helpful. Just get a napkin or whatever. It doesn't have to be long. What happened? How did it make you feel? And anger is the one we're looking at. And then just ponder it. What, what about, why am I angry? And how, if this is resolved, is God glorified? I find out a lot of times in my own life, as I've gone through this exercise, a lot of my anger comes off of my own selfishness and not off of God's glory. And so I don't actually have to solve the problem. I just need to confess that I had weird, selfish expectations that God was not meeting because he knew more. He is sovereign and he knows what is truly good eternally. And when we find that sin, because there may be a sin, there may be something that is making you angry that is actually an injustice. How do we deal with that? I think we deal with it as Christ does, with the attributes of God. When something that we find, if we find something that is of sin and it needs to be addressed, I think it's really easy for evangelical Christians to, to confront sin with righteousness, to confront sin with truth and just say, you're wrong, chapter, verse, done. But that's not how we're called to confront the evil of this world. We're called to confront the evil of this world with the virtues of Christ. So, Godly anger, then, confronts injustice justly. Not with further injustice, but with, with justice. Godly anger confronts ethic, uh, unethical behavior ethically. Godly anger confronts fighting and strife lovingly. It thinks of the bigger picture. Why is this person here? What brokenness are they leaning into? And how might Christ help them, not just in this issue, but in their whole understanding, go forward? And that's tough because it takes time. And it's tough because it takes humility. And it it's tough because sometimes, oftentimes, we don't have the perfect answer. So, what causes you anger? We'll get on to the next one here. Uh, Jonah then uh, becomes exceedingly glad. And I love this. He says, uh, God, God asked the question, uh, do you do well to be angry? And so right there, then Jonah, uh, what I imagine is happening in the, in, in the story here is it's, you know, I'm imagining it in my head, is uh, right there between verses four and five, Jonah doesn't answer, which is, is great. If, you ever had, if you've ever had kids or if you had anyone younger than you and you said, hey, here's something, I want to ask you something that would be for your good to answer. I'm really trying to help you be a better person. And that person walks away. That's great. That's great. That's, that's a perfect sign of stubbornness. Um, and so what I imagine here from my experience with children, maybe not my own, maybe my own, uh, is when you tell them something like that, they, they cross their arms, they get the scowl, and they, hmm, and then they stomp off. And so that's what I think Jonah's doing here. Jonah went out of the city. I would say Jonah stomped off angrily like a toddler, sat on the east side of the city, made a booth for himself there. He makes a booth so he could have shade. He sat there, and now the Lord comes and does something. He appoints a plant, made it come up uh, over Jonah that it might shade him over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah's there like tailgating destruction. He's like, we, we're going to just camp out here. This is going to be great. He's got shade. Another shade pops up giving him more comfort, and that's what makes him glad. 
Joy, like anger, seems to be a natural emotion. It seems to be a reaction of something. And I think if, if, uh, if anger comes from unmet expectation, I wonder if joy comes from a, a favorable situation, whether it's unexpected or not. You know, we, we expect our, uh, our team to win, and uh, then they win, and it gives us great joy. Um, or unexpected, uh, an unexpected compliment comes your way, and it gives you great joy. Um, like all the unexpected compliments you all are going to give each other when we walk out of here. See how I did that? It's going to just be a joyous lobby after this. Um, it seems like that's what's here for Jonah. He's unexpected the extra amount of shade. Not that just he had shade, but he had extra shade, extra comfort. I think that's a good, a good little, little, little nod there to, to maybe what's at the heart of Jonah's emotions is himself. What gives him great pain and anger is that people he doesn't like get good things. What gives him great, great uh, exceeding joy or exceeding gladness is that he has an increased physical comfort for a time. And I don't want to say that, uh, that, that, that comfort is a bad thing. It can be good to delight in the small things of life. Uh, I eat lots of ice cream because of that. Uh, but when the, uh, when the small things of life overshadow the joy of eternal life, that's where we've got a problem. And that's what's happening with Jonah, is he's taking the small things of life, the shade that he gets while watching people that he's hoping are going to die, he gets great comfort from that, great joy from that. And the irony of this situation is he's sitting on a hill watching all these people who just were saved and turned to God, and that brings him no joy. His immediate selfish feelings and comfort overshadow the eternal joy at the foot of the hill. How is this off? How is this different than God's joy? God's joy comes from something more eternal. In Ezekiel 18, we read, Do I, uh, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, I'm not pleased when they turn uh, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Rather, He delights when people turn to Him. Jonah is not delighting in that for some reason that I think is deep within each of our hearts. You see, our joy should come most from, uh, not from our daily comforts, but in Christ. And I would say maybe even measuring differently than we normally do. Our joy can come from the daily evidences of people turning to God. Now, how amazing would that be if we walked around and, and we were able to uh, uh, publicly say, and, and we did this just as the Stonebridge people of God, we could see when, when someone takes a step toward Jesus, uh, when an addict uh, of, of whatever kind is sober for a week, and rather than thinking, uh, this isn't going to work. Or then they're sober for a month saying, well, finally, it looks like they're getting, getting their act together. Rather, we would say, praise God, the work he's doing in their life. And we would come alongside them and encourage them. What if uh, someone who has an incredible sense of doubt is starting to have some confidence because they've been in Scripture and learning in the community of God with each other, and they, just, and, and they stop apologizing when they lead off their sentences? What if we celebrated that? 
and we had joy, and we could say, right here, something very small happened, but eternally, this is huge. You are taking steps towards Jesus. And I mean, this also encompasses exactly what Ezekiel 18 is saying. What if, what if we celebrated, like party style, when someone became a Christian, when they actually reconciled their, their sin and accepted Christ as their Savior? Oh, it'd be so wonderful. What a wonderful journey. Rather than uh, consider it maybe just one, one uh, pre- prerequisite toward membership. This is life. This is a joyful thing God has given us. And so when, when, our, when our comforts of this life overshadow the eternal life, we've got problems. Let's move then to pity. Because I think this eternal perspective is going to move us towards that, that place of pity. We read here in these, uh, these final verses, God says, uh, he says, uh, do you do well to be angry for the plant? In verse, uh, verse 9. And Jonah says, it's like my favorite line ever, yes, angry enough to die. Uh, nice job, Jonah. Um, and then God says, you pity for the plant. So we know that Jonah has pity. And he says, you pity for the plant, which you did nothing for. Should not I pity Nineveh? And what's implied there, if you compare the two, is who I created and sustained and care for. So, uh, as a child of the 80s, I, I feel a need to redefine what the word pity means. Because um, uh, the good old A-team and Mr. T, uh, I pity the fool. Uh, that ruined my definition of pity. So a pity in that definition, a pity, a pitying someone is uh, more like uh, whoever goes against me is going to get it. Uh, whoever goes against me is going to be, an, uh, you know, going to hurt for it. Uh, you're foolish. You're, you're, you're an idiot if you decide to go against me. I pity the fool. That's a, completely not what, uh, the, what biblical pity is. A biblical sense of pity. If we look through the Old Testament, you, know, you could just type in pity on your, on your Bible uh, app and, and find all of these and read and try and figure out what is, what is the definition of pity as I read these verses. It seems like the defini- biblical definition of pity is something like compassion moved toward action. Uh, compassion moved toward action. So it's not just a, an observation pity where you just kind of sit there and cringe like, oh, what do I do? I don't know. And there's a, you know, paralysis or even just a no interest in moving toward that person. But actually seeing someone who's in a state where they've believed broke, the brokenness of this world, they're in the brokenness, they've experienced it, and you say, we're going to do something to get you out. And there's a, there's a sense of pity, and it's, it's that, that yeah, compassion moving, you know, uh, actively. And so I think if, uh, you know, what brings about anger is unmet expectation what gives you joy is a favorable situation. We're going to rhyme this one too. Uh, what gives you pity is a humble identification, um, not exactly with every aspect of the person, but to, to, to empathize with them, to understand what they're, what they're experiencing and where they need to hear Christ. We read that Jonah pitied the attacked and withered plant. Oh, that poor plant. And, we wanted to, and he wanted to save it. And how does he want to save it? So it's this, this, um, this compassion that moves towards action. And, and throughout Scripture, it actually is this action of saving. You know, God will oftentimes say, don't pity these people uh, when, when you're taking them over as I have ordained. 
because he says we're not going to save them. So there's this idea of save. He wants this plant to continue on. He wants it to, to extend its life. He wants it to be good. He wants the welfare of his plant. Why? To extend his comfort. Uh, he wants shade upon his shade. Remember, he still has the booth. Uh, this is so strange. He's so utterly selfish, and that's what's at the heart of it. And that can be in our hearts, in our minds as well. We can be working for good in the city around us, in the, in, in, in the society around us, and if we don't sit and test our, our thoughts and our hearts, we may be trying to advance things so that our own creature comforts, our own day, our own week, our own school year, our own whatever it's going to be, is comfortable rather than advocating for those things, pushing for those things that God wants to advance his kingdom. Oh, how sweet it would be if they were both the same. But if you're like me, I really like things to happen. I like it when North Liberty passes ordinances that make living in North Liberty easier. So I want to, I want to advocate for those. That's selfish. But if they would pass ordinances that made proclaiming Christ just widespread throughout the city, oh, wow, we've got something real here. And then God says, so what is the pity that God has? He pities the Ninevites because he has that same kind of compassion that moves toward action to save. He wants them to know him. He wants them to turn from their ways. So I have to ask myself, I ask this every time I read the book of Jonah, where'd Jonah go wrong here? Like, what is the point here? And these are some of the conclusions I have. You may have more, you may disagree, but here's what I've thrown out here. What, where did Jonah go wrong? I think at the heart of it, Jonah valued his will over God's. Jonah has an incredibly good theology of God. I mean, he, he quotes uh, the, the old, uh, he, he quotes um, Exodus. And when God says, here's my name, then he just says, here's who you are. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I mean, that's, that's exactly God, Yahweh, to a T. He just doesn't like how God acts. He says, I know who you are. I'd just rather you be a little less kind to the people I don't like. It'd make it a whole lot easier for me. And I think that's because point two is uh, uh, the reason he went wrong is uh, because Jonah values himself over others. Why do the chores get so infuriating sometimes? Well, I'll tell you, if you're in my house, if you're in my head, if you're in my heart, it's because I feel like I do the dishes every day and it's someone else's turn, right? Well, it, it is if you have a chart and all that stuff and you all agreed to it, but deep down, that resentment in doing those daily tasks, that really shouldn't be a big deal. It wells up something that exposes that Deep down inside, we really have to fight that temptation to map our entire world around our own pleasure and our own desires. And I think then maybe a, a third, third reason, maybe where Jonah went wrong, Jonah valued the immediate over the eternal. He wanted whatever was good and comfortable right now. He wanted, he wanted to dial in his, uh, his, his schedule he wanted to dial in uh, everything about his house and his rhythms. He wanted to dial in, you know, the perfect, the perfect children. He wanted to dial in the perfect spouse. He wanted to dial in the perfect politics. And all the while, he forgot the kingdom. 
that God saves sinners. That salvation comes from the Lord. He even says it, but he doesn't really believe it. But that's the big point. And then we get to the end of the book. And the, the story stops abruptly, like awkwardly so. And it leaves us, literarily speaking, it leaves us to consider what happened. What happened to Jonah? Like, did you just stay there? Does God confront him again? Does, he, does God actually kill him? Um, and it seems like because Jesus refers to Jonah and the story of Jonah, he refers to Jonah as though he is a historical figure. It seems as though we have biblical proof that this, Jonah is actually a real historical person. This is a real historical um, event. And so if it's a real historical event, then you have to ask, who knew all the details of this history? Well, it seems like Jonah did. Okay, now we get to the, 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 the great exercise to maybe think about or talk about over lunch. If Jonah wrote this, what changed in Jonah's heart? Because Josh Casey ain't writing something like this that's this negative about Josh Casey. Something happened to Jonah. Maybe he got it. I hope. Maybe he puts this out. It's kind of the, don't do what I did. I don't know. But we don't know. We don't have anything else after that. But we don't have to wait to solve all of those questions there because we do get the ultimate closure in Matthew 12. We've quoted it several times. Jesus comes along and he says, here's the point of Jonah. A real person actually was just pointing towards me. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. That's Jesus. In Jesus, Let's think about all the parallels here. We have another who was called by God to proclaim justice to perishing people. Same. And who was under for three days, only to return and deliver God's message. And when people turned, we find that the story ends with him sitting. This is crazy. That one parallel may be like, hmm, that's a whole lot. And it doesn't matter how many parallels Jesus says, I am him. I am the better Jonah. What's the difference then? There are so many similarities. What's the difference between Jesus' story and ours? Or and, and Jonah's? I think the difference comes down to Jesus saying, you have a task for me. It seems like a bitter cup. Take it from me. And then, here it is. This is the difference between Jonah and Jesus. And then he says, not my will, but yours be done. That's the, the total difference there. What would happen if we chose that? Not my will, but yours be done. My anger has come about for some reason, but not my will, but yours be done. Use this redemptively. Convict me of my sin or help me to move uh, against this unholiness that's there. What would happen if our joy was measured not by our will, but God's? What would happen if, if, uh, if our pity if the way in which we had compassion on people was not by our will of how maybe they could uh, be a great story for us uh, to share with others, but rather not our will but yours be done, that they would come to Christ. We would begin to pity those who are lost, who are, who are as ignorant and confused as those who are described in that very awkward verse 11 of all these people. We, they don't even know the right from their left. They just don't even know. They're confused. We see in Christ 
that all of these emotions are redeemed are you and are used for bringing about righteousness, for bringing people to Christ. We see Jesus was angry. He was angry. He goes into the temple and he sees that they've taken the, 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 the worship, they've added consumerism to it, and, 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 and he says, let's get this out of here. What is Jesus' anger doing there? He's not saying, everybody be angry because you're Christians. His, angry, his anger is specifically focused as bringing about righteous worship again to the temple. He wants to bring about the holiness of God. Jesus has joy with all the heavenly hosts. We read in in Luke 15, verse 7, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The joy of the Lord comes from salvation of people. And then as uh, as we've heard already this morning, Jesus moves through pity towards us. We read in, uh, in Hebrews 4, he doesn't just stay away. He has some humble identification with us. He doesn't just sit back as, a, as an angry ogre in the sky saying, you guys are lackluster and you're all going to die. He says, I'm going to enter in. I'm going to tabernacle with you. I'm going to be like you. We do not have a high priest. This is uh, Hebrews 4. Who is, un- who is unable to sympathize with us, to feel the same way we do. He was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then enter with, uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How sweet is that? Jesus redeems all of those emotions. And we do well to study how he does this, how he displays this, how he teaches this, that we might be a people that look a whole lot like God and Jesus. And that's why I would think that making making the goal of people turning to Christ the motive for your day is going to move you away from Jonah. And if you're like me, it's going to move you away from where you would naturally sit. And it's going to move you to a place where God has put you on commission. So what if the people of Stonebridge were known to our community and the surrounding world by the character of God expressed here in verse 2? What if we were known as people who are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster? What if we held our tongue and moved towards people for their good and God's glory? What if we turned from our anger, uh, turned from being angry at people to being angry at the brokenness of this world and then doing something about the brokenness? What if uh, we turned in our rejoicing from what was comfortable, what was preferential, and more publicly, more vocally, rejoiced at the eternal winds counted in small steps of those who believe and those who repent and grow in Christ? What if uh, the, Stonebr- the people of Stonebridge were, were, were known as people who meet others in common spaces, even if you only have a couple things that are common and a whole lot of things that are different? But in those spaces, 
and use that as a way to come alongside each person as they take their next step. I think this would be amazing. And I think we can do that. We have uh, Christ who has, has given us the power to do it. We have the Spirit who moves us there. And so, I would encourage you, uh, take a look at these emotions. Ask yourself, uh, what, what do my uh, somewhat reflexive emotions uh, reveal about my heart? And maybe even assess your situation. There's a whole lot of appointing that happens in this chapter. Uh, and, and maybe the question is, I don't want to go too far with it, but maybe you ask a question, might God be appointing something in my life today or in this season that might draw out my sin-revealing emotions? It seems like everything that God appoints in the book of Jonah is purpose to draw out how nasty of a heart Jonah has. Maybe he still does that. And even if he is not doing that with you, it's always good to consider where you're at with God. But ultimately, I think we can have hope. We're emotional people, and that's just how we're created. But emotions aren't bad when leveraged for Christ. So we can have hope. God's bigger than our emotions, and he can use our emotions and does and wants to. Read the book of Psalms. Emotional people can, be, can, be, can focus their emotions toward the glory of of God. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't have not reconciled and, and, and confessed your sin, that you are a sinner deserving the just wrath of God, and that Christ just freely, everything we've sang so far today, uh, just gives that forgiveness. Ezekiel 18 finishes, uh, later on in the chapter, it finishes with saying that God is pleased when people turn to God, turn from their wickedness and to Him. And then it just says, so repent and live. And that's how the people of Nineveh lived as they repented. And that's how we do each and every day. So let's turn to God now and ask him that he would uh, send his spirit to help us, to uh, convict us of our, of our dark sins when they are not glorifying to him and to use them for the advancement of the kingdom. God, we thank you that you've made us emotional. We thank you that you made uh, Jonah emotional and you did something in him to write it down that we could read it and uh, study it ourselves. Pray that you would give us uh, a great confidence in Christ uh, that we can, that we can uh, know that we are forgiven no matter what surfaces in our conversations or our thoughts when we're quiet and alone or when we're with others. And that because we can be so confident of the forgiveness and the love and the compassion that Jesus has for us that we can be honest and deal with the dark stuff that we keep in our hearts. Pray that you would uh, give us a sweet presence to create open spaces to talk through these things. It's hard to talk about emotions, but it seems like such a great way to reach our world and each other for God's glory. Pray that you would turn hearts to you, convicting of sin. Pray that you would take any of these words I've said today and edit, amend, change, alter, whatever people need, that, you're, that you would be most glorified through it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word.